This morning, though, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're back in uh, chapter 2 as we're stepping through this book. As Pastor Nathan uh, expressed, it's a little bit gloomy. If you just read it straight through, uh, you will be kind of inundated with a message of apparent despair uh, and sadness uh, throughout the pages. It's, it, it, Solomon is expressing some hard truths of the Bible. Some hard realities of life, I might even say. And, I, and in that way, I think it's one of the most bizarre books. It's a bizarre book because it doesn't have this sort of overriding hope, at least at present in the text, that we can see and glean from it and come away from it uh, very uh, filled with joy, filled with happiness, so to speak. Uh, as we mentioned last week, it's a curious book also in the, in the fact that it's written from Solomon's perspective. And often he references himself in the third person. And much, I, I like to read this book in much of the same vein that we would read someone's diary that we've stolen from underneath their mattress or something like that. <laughs> you get that picture when you're opening this book that you're reading the innermost thoughts of this monarch of Israel. And not just a monarch of Israel, but also, as we know, it's Solomon, the wisest man who has ever stepped foot on this earth. One who was so astute in the ways of the world. And yet we're reading his sort of inner dialogue as he approaches different avenues of life to find something meaningful. And I think that's what also makes this book so bizarre. It's that it's, it's a vulnerable look. At this king. When do you ever get the chance to read the most vulnerable thoughts of a royal dignitary of a nation, of a country? And yet here we are doing and getting able, being able to do just that with the preacher, Solomon here. Which is to say this, that I think Ecclesiastes is one of the most important books in the entire scriptures. It's one of the most important books that we uh, can grapple with, that we can study, that we can examine. And I think also, too, chapter 2, as we're going to look at this morning, all 26 verses here are some of the most, it presents some of the most important truths, I think, in this entire book, even. Because men and women everywhere, throughout all of life, we know, as it says in our Constitution, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This has become sort of the sort of motto, the, 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 the anthem by which all Americans live. But I also hasten to say that I think that's also the way many live, regardless if they're American or not. It's, I would say, as we've been describing Ecclesiastes, as it describes the human experience, the human experience is we are pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at all costs. Pursuing a life that lasts, pursuing liberty that is true liberty, pursuing happiness that stays with us. It's the pursuit of something everlasting, something that we can really sink our teeth into and know that it will stay around. And yet, the unfortunate thing, as we have already gleaned and as we will glean even further from chapter 2, is that we have been looking, man looks in all of the wrong places for those things. Man is on, yes, a pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. But he's looking in all the wrong places. He's turning over every rock, looking in every nook and cranny for what he wants. And he's looking in all the wrong spots. 
This is essentially, I think, what Solomon is confessing here as he embarks upon what I would like to hasten to call a terrible search. (laughs) He's on a terrible search for life and liberty and happiness. And where does this terrible search lead him to first? Well, let's start right there in verse number one. Verses one through three this morning present us with a lesson about entertainment. A lesson about entertainment. Notice what he says. I said in mine heart... Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. He sets out on this terrible search for something abiding, something everlasting. It begins with this concept of mirth. It may be a word that's unfamiliar to you. It essentially just means that. Gladness. Pleasure. Entertainment. He is trying now to sort of drown out the frustrations of life. With the constant noise of being entertained. Notice he says verse 3. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. Yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. And to lay hold on folly till I might see. What was that good for the sons of men. Which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. He noticed in the first chapter, if you remember, he notices all of these frustrating realities that he cannot comprehend. And not just cannot comprehend, that he cannot make right. So what does he try to do? He's going to try to entertain himself out of these frustrating realities. He's coping with all this grief with laughter. He's having parties all the time. I just get the sense that he's in almost like a constant rave. He's always feasting, always entertaining, always looking for ways that he can be entertained, that his heart can be enthused, and that he can forget about the frustrations that he knows exist. He's feasting every day. (laughs) Go with me. I want you to get a glimpse of Solomon's uh, sort of ability to please himself, to entertain himself. Look at 1 Kings chapter 4. There is one of the most intriguing little details about Solomon's daily life here in 1 Kings 4. Where it talks about the daily provision for food. Listen to this. 1 Kings 4 verse 22. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pastures and 100 sheep besides hearts and roebucks and fallow deer and fatted fowl. One provision for one day. This is the feast that he's laying out. 30 oxen. <laughs> not to mention all the venison that he has and not to mention all the lamb chops that he cooks. One day he's cooking all of this. There's a lot of spoils, a lot of leftovers that he doesn't have a microwave to reheat. This is Solomon's way of feeding himself, of entertaining himself. You can see he's trying to indulge himself in whatever feels good. Pursuing laughter, pursuing this party scene. He's trying to find something that he can get away from all the noise that he feels. And of course, this doesn't last long. Notice he says, verse 2 of chapter 2, back in Ecclesiastes, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? What's the point of all of this? You know, I was thinking, uh, we go, I, I enjoy the occasional sitcom. 
you know, a 30, 20 to 30 minute sitcom, a situational comedy in which people are put in some sort of circumstance that is uh, over the top, that is greater than life, and it's funny because of their characters, because of the things they say or whatever. It's funny. It's entertaining. But you know what's interesting <laughs> is that oftentimes some of the best sitcoms, all of the things that the people do within that 20 minute story have no bearing on the rest of the show. There's no sort of uh, lasting evidence that they gleaned anything from that circumstance, that they learned anything. And even for us, the viewers of this entertaining reality, when the sitcom is over, the laughter from that sitcom is over too. It's only entertaining for a moment. And this is what Solomon found. For all of these avenues that he was pursuing, uh, being entertained, pursuing this joy, pursuing this mirth, he found what? That it was fleeting. It was here in a moment and gone even faster. It was here in just a second and gone even quicker than that. This entertainment brought momentary escape. It brought escape from life's frustrations, but then it was over, and he had to do it all over again. He had to have that party all over again. He had to have that pleasure all over again, because it comes quick, and it goes even faster. What does it accomplish, he says? What doeth it? What is the point of pursuing this? If it's going to have to be repeated over and over again, it doesn't accomplish anything. You can see Solomon's frustration as he's on a terrible search for something eternal. And he goes to be entertained and he finds what? That it doesn't leave him with anything. In fact, it leaves him hollow. That's really what that word means there where he says, I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth. What do with it? The concept is it is hollow. It has nothing of substance to it. It has nothing with which you can sink your teeth into. It's vaporous. Our word, vanity, as he says there, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he found entertainment to be just that. If you're going to that to be pleased, to find something lasting, you're going to something hollow. You're going to something with no substance and something that cannot produce anything of permanence. You're going to something that is madness and foolishness, as he says there. The point then about this lesson about entertainment is that you cannot please yourself into everlasting joy. Only God can give you that. Only God can give you that. But let me hasten to the second lesson that we see here in chapter 2. A lesson about entertainment. The second lesson here is a lesson about procurement. Look at verse 4. A lesson about procurement. Listen to what Solomon does now. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also had many great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men so as, as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Solomon here. 
He finds out that this idea of entertaining himself into abundance of life and joy and happiness, it actually it doesn't work. He founds that it doesn't produce anything of that sort. And so what he turns to now, he turns to procurement. Or we might also call it materialism. He just starts buying stuff. He starts manufacturing stuff. Building things. He starts to, at a rapid pace, try to make something of this kingdom. Building projects galore. Withholding nothing from himself. If he saw it. He got it, or he made it, or he made it happen. It's like the most intense shopping spree you've ever seen. (laughs) Except, look at what he says. He confesses that in verse 10. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Whatever he saw, he got it. Whatever he wanted, he acquired it, or he built it, or he fabricated it. You notice too, he's even in this pursuit, this pursuit of procuring this sort of lasting joy. He's pursuing a lot of different industries. He goes from architecture to agriculture to some sort of industry to sensuality to culture. He's pursuing all the different ways you can procure something. There's no realm of society that Solomon did not explore. He's exploring it all. He's pursuing it all. But you know what I also notice about these verses? In verses 4 through 8 especially. Listen to how many times he references himself. He says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water. To water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens. And had servants born in my house. I also had great possessions. Greater than all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold. Listen to all of that. It's such a self-concerned pursuit that he is the one who has taken it upon himself to procure the joy that would last. To procure the meaning that would actually give his life something of purpose. And what did he have to show for it? Nothing. Listen to what he confesses. Notice in verse 9, a very peculiar phrase. He says, also my wisdom remained with me. He was still pursuing all of this under the guise and under the garb of wisdom. And notice he says, verse 11, this wisdom leads him to sort of self-examine his current pursuit. And what does he say? Then I looked, verse 11, on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was Vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. All of these things that he bought, all of these uh, uh, projects that he procured, and yet what did he find? He was still empty. He was no fuller of everlasting joy than when he started. He had pursued all of these things and they had brought him no profit. Actually, he says it was vanity and vexation of spirit. It's like trying to chase after the wind. Trying to buy everlasting meaning and joy and life and liberty and happiness is like trying to chase wind. 
can never catch it. You're always a step behind it. You're always a step behind what it claims to offer. You know, I was thinking about this. Who in our day and age are lauded, are lionized, so to speak, as having it all? Celebrities, right? They are the ones that are put on all the front pages and are paraded as to, uh, as to say that they have it all. They have all the joys that you can imagine. They have all the pleasures that you can imagine. All of the, the meaning. Look at all the things they're accomplishing. And yet, they don't. We know that oftentimes through their own testimony. And in fact, one of the most sort of insightful testimonies from one of their own, a celebrity himself, was from Jim Carrey. You know, the famed comedian from countless movies and TV shows and stand-up comedy specials, Jim Carrey. He says this. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. (laughs) I find that very insightful. That even Jim Carrey, a one who would say that has lived long enough and have lived a very accomplished, but he has procured, so to speak, everything that he could ever dream of. And he says himself that it's not the answer. It too is vanity. It too is frustration and vexation of spirit. Celebrities we know, they're just like us. They have tragedy and heartache galore. They live mostly unfulfilled lives. If you read a lot of the testimonies of their own careers. Lives that are unfulfilled and mostly joyless. The point about procurement is the fact that you cannot buy the joy that Jesus wants to give you. Listen to this verse. This, you can write it down and read it later. This comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and verse 11. Jesus is speaking to his own, his disciples, his apostles. And notice what he says, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might, be, might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is one of the consequences of the gospel that Jesus was coming to establish. That he has come to give us his joy. To give us his meaning and purpose and hope and life. You cannot buy that. With all of the millions and billions of dollars that the richest in the world have. They cannot buy what only Jesus can give you. And if you're trying to. You're going to find out that it's not the answer according to Jim Carrey, but also according to Solomon, that all of it is vanity and vexation of spirit. Which leads me to a third lesson. We had a lesson about entertainment and a lesson about procurement, but verses 12 through 17, which Pastor Nathan read, we have a lesson about discernment. Notice he says, verse 12, And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? And then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. So Solomon leaves behind sort of the pursuits of hedonism, just pleasing himself and entertaining himself. And he leaves behind the pursuit of materialism, trying to buy his happiness. And here he turns to what we might call intellectualism or discernment. 
He's pursuing this medley of wisdom and madness and folly. This amalgamation of all these different ways of looking at the world. And what does he find? He says in verse 13 that wisdom excels folly. Wisdom has inherent value. Wisdom excelleth folly. It is profitable. It is advantageous. It is something that has a little bit of inherent worth to it. Something that makes it worth pursuing. Why is, as he says there, then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth the darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And his point there is that wisdom is better than folly. Folly is the same sort of word in the same sort of vein as mirth. This uh, uh, uncontrollable, just empty entertainment and silliness. And he says that wisdom excels that because wisdom actually provides insight. It gives one judgment. It gives one prudence. And there's something of substance to that. To the fool, he says, they just walk in darkness. They're just stumbling about in their own foolishness, in their own pursuits of folly. But notice Solomon's frustration. Because even when he thinks he's found something to sink his teeth into, notice he says in verse 14, and I myself perceived that, that, excuse me, and I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. And then I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What's the one event? That happens to the fool and the wise. Death. They both die. They both leave this world in the same way. And this is incredibly frustrating to Solomon. He thinks that he's found something that is everlasting. Wisdom. He can pursue it. And yet he even knows there that it too has a lifespan. Just like a light. No light burns forever. Wisdom, too, cannot bring him eternal life. It cannot bring him eternal happiness. And he found that regardless of how discerning he was in his own life, he would still meet the same end as the foolish man who wasted his life. They would both come to the end of their lives and have to face the fact that they would die. This is a harsh reality to come to. Because we like to think that we can earn our way into a better, happier, more long life. And actually, Psalm is coming to say that that's actually not true. Death comes for everyone. It's the great evening score of every single human who's ever lived. Because regardless of how you've lived, the same curse applies to us. That applied to Adam in the garden. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. For kings and peasants alike. For famed actors and for office workers. (laughs) Regardless of what space you've lived in. This applies to us. Death comes for us. The wise man and the foolish man. As Solomon here is reconciling with. They are both buried. There's no sort of uh, qualifications for that. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no outs. There's no ways to get out of it. It's the unavoidable reality of post-Genesis 3 life. That we were made from dust, and to dust we will return. 
And Solomon finds this incredibly upsetting. <laughs> I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, verse 15, so it happened even to me. Why was I then even more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. This is frustrating. Why? Because there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the the wise man as the fool? Therefore I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Even in wisdom, he finds that it cannot bring eternal life. It cannot bring everlasting happiness. He cannot reconcile with all of life's frustrations. He hates that fact. And even more so, our next lesson, uh, verse 18 down through 23, is our fourth lesson in the text. A lesson about achievement. Because this hatred of life, out of his discernment, after he's pursued that, it actually increases as he realizes that for all he has achieved, it guarantees him nothing. Notice verse 18. Yet I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. You notice, he comes to this stark and sudden realization that all of these achievements, they guarantee him nothing. For all of his labor, for all as he has accomplished, for all of the ends that he has made to come about. All of the incredible vineyards and orchards and building projects and things that he has accomplished in life at his own hands. He has to leave it all behind. He can't do anything with it when he's gone. Death is coming as he's just realized and he cannot stop that. And neither can he bring anything with him. It's that old proverbial joke. That no U-Haul has ever followed a hearse. Because you can't bring it with you when you're gone. Their pyramids are full of man's attempt to do that. Of great pharaohs and kings trying to bring all of their possessions with them into the afterlife. And what are they doing? They're rotting away, collecting dust and rust in darkness. Solomon realizes... He has zero, zero control of what will happen to all he has accomplished and achieved. All of these things that he has done that builds up his resume, he realizes that he has to leave it to someone who hasn't worked for it. And that frustrates him. That there's going to be someone that comes after him who possesses all of the things that he has labored and sweated over and tried to bring about. And he 
realizes that all of this, all of these accomplishments that he's chased after, they secure him nothing. Nothing that lasts. Nothing that stays. Nothing that's eternal. Let me tell you, everyone feels the weight of that. That even though they're chasing after something that they should rightly achieve, it's a good goal for their, perhaps their industry or career, they have to face the reality that that goal doesn't bring them anything. Let's go back to our proverbial preacher, Jim Carrey. A couple years ago, Jim Carrey was giving a speech at the Golden Globes Awards Ceremony. And which is just a ceremony where actors create a ceremony where they can congratulate themselves. But it was interesting what he says. Because Jim Carrey is here speaking. And he's giving this really insightful sort of pointed commentary on his own self. And if you watch the video, you can find it on YouTube. It's kind of sad. Because the people in the crowd are laughing. At what he says, which I'm going to read it to you in a minute. But I think there's a lot more truth to what Jim Carrey says. It's almost like he's confessing. He says this, quote, When I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to sleep. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream, no sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. If you take that out of the context of a Golden Globes award ceremony, what does it read like? It reads like Solomon. Declaring that all of these achievements, they don't last. I'm on a terrible search for something to fulfill me. And all of these trophies that I've amassed. And it's a career that I have established at my own ability. It doesn't fulfill. Jim Carrey is there confessing to his constituents. That even though he's one, two, he's chasing after another. Even though he knows that won't fulfill him. It reminds me, to give you another example. Of, you may have a lot of feelings about him, but the beloved, uh, the once beloved New England Patriots, now Tampa Bay Buccaneer Tom Brady. A couple of years ago, he gave this interview with an ESPN reporter, and he says this. He, at the time of this interview, he had won three Super Bowls. Now, of course, he's won six, so I'm going to read it as if he's won six. He says, why do I have six Super Bowl rings, and still think there is something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Tom Brady, the man who many would say has reached the pinnacle of achievement in his uh, chosen profession. Many would laud him as the greatest NFL quarterback of all time. And what does he confess? There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more to this life than just what I have. Than just what I've accomplished. He's still searching. 
Just like Jim Carrey, as he confesses to be on the terrible search, Tom Brady likewise, and anyone else who has ever tried to live life trying to pursue their own joy through their own ability and their own means will still be searching. They will still be on a terrible search. And such is the point. The point of this lesson about achievement is that as long as you are searching for something lasting in a world that does not last, you will be on a terrible search. There will always be that sense, that feeling of something more, something better, something that you have to achieve afterwards. Life won't be fulfilling. It will be frustrating. As Solomon has here confessed, it will be vanity. It will be filled with that. So what then are we to do? We can't please ourselves. We can't accomplish anything. We can't sort of... Achieve any sort of wisdom that can make sense of all this. What are we to do? Is what's the point of living? Is there any sort of pleasure to be had at all in this life? I would say certainly yes, and that's ex- exactly what I think Solomon speaks to in the last three verses, which bring us to our final lesson in the text, which is a lesson about enjoyment. Notice what Solomon says. After all of these. Sort of recognitions and realizations, he says this. There is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail. To gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Notice he says here as he begins this little closing paragraph. That there is nothing better than to enjoy these things. As he says there come from the hand of God. I think oftentimes these verses are criminally misunderstood. We read them, and rightly so in some senses, that we see that he should just eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy all that is good, and we just think he's sort of uh, promoting this nihilistic lifestyle. This idea that everything is pointless, life is meaningless, so just enjoy it up, live it up while you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not what Solomon is saying. Again, just read it. He says, this I saw was from the hand of God. That these things were made by God for him to enjoy. And such is Solomon's testimony. There are things that we can enjoy in life. Things that God gives to us from his own hand. And we see here that this is what Solomon uh, or we notice here that Solomon does not condemn these things here in these verses. And in fact, all throughout, he hasn't once condemned the idea of entertainment or procurement or discernment or achievement. He's not demonizing those pursuits. What he is commenting on is how they are handled. How they are handled. Because you see, our problem is not our enjoyment of entertainment or pleasures or pursuits or our careers or ambitions. Our problem is that we go to those things for what they cannot offer. 
everlasting fulfillment and meaning and purpose and peace and joy and rest and happiness. If you're going to those things to find that, you will be on a terrible search and you will come up empty every single time. But that does not mean that we cannot enjoy life the way God intended it. These enjoyments that Solomon mentions here, food and drink and good company, they come from God's hand. But they were not what we were made to center our lives around. They can never fill the soul. Solomon says that there is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This I also saw that was from the hand of God. For who can eat? Or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. These are the good gifts of grace that come from God himself. And he's articulating here. That the Christian in this life, a life that is filled with frustrations, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, it's full of vanity heads, he says. The Christians hold and possess a way that they can enjoy life. Why? Because they know that their souls are not settled by anything here under the sun. You see, the meaning behind this verse, verse 24... It's just this, that we do not eat and drink as if that was our God. As if that is the way we are going to fix life's problems. We're just going to escape them. We're going to entertain ourselves in them. We're going to achieve something. We eat and drink. We pursue life's pursuits knowing and expecting that God is the one who does that work of fixing eternity. That's what he's promised to do. That's what he has promised to do in his gospel, in his good news. That he is going to rectify all that we've broken. That burden is his. He is the king that is going to reclaim his throne. Therefore, we are free. Free to enjoy life because eternity is already settled outside of our ability. And we don't enjoy it as if that was our God. We enjoy it as a gift coming from God. Therefore, we can have a nice steak dinner with friends. Have a nice outing with our kids. Have a nice party with all of our family and friends at our house. For whatever occasion we want to make up. And it's not an abandonment of our calling. Why? Because we know That eternity has already been settled by the power of God's grace. That burden is his. Our burden as Solomon has everywhere been trying to get at. To be faithful with what's around us. Faithful with what is our lot. He says that. There's nothing better. For a man that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. In his lot. In the things that he has been given by God. This is the gift of grace I think in the Christian life. Satan would like to deceive you in saying that your joy is conditional. It's contingent upon something else. 
Your everlasting fulfillment and meaning and all those things, it can only be found uh, on the contingency that you find or achieve or uh, do something else. God's promise is so much different. God's promise is that the, the, that the fulfillment that you long after and the meaning that you're chasing and the purpose that you hope for and the peace that you pray for and the joy that you long to experience and the rest that actually lasts, it's given to you in the gospel of here's dear son, Jesus Christ. It's yours for the taking because of Christ. Psalm. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down. Psalm 16, verse 11. It's a verse that I think it echoes of what the verse that we read in John chapter 15. But Psalm 16, 11, the psalmist confesses the same sort of truth. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the life that Jesus is desirous of giving us. And by faith, we are made to rest in that promise. That the pleasures and the joys that come from Jesus' fullness are ours. By faith. No more chasing after wind to try to get them. No more uh, laboring over trying to manufacture them by your own power. We are given the ultimate rest of our souls because he has made our souls rest in the fact that all of this is ours in him. So we leave here this morning and have to ask the question, who or what are we living for? What pursuit has come to be our God? Are we trying to entertain ourselves out of trying to cope with life's realities? Are we trying to procure something that only God can give us? Are we trying to achieve something that we think will fill us? Or we are resting in the enjoyment that God gives. Knowing that eternity is settled. That if your soul is in his hands, covered by blood, you are more free than anyone to enjoy life. Because you know who gave you that ability to enjoy. You know who gave you those things that are around you. The gifts that come are from his grace. The same grace that saves and redeems and reconciles our souls. Who are you living for? Are you on a terrible search trying to find what only God can give? Or are you resting in his peace? This morning the invitation is as it always is. Jesus' words. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Let us pray.